0: Well, it's always a blessing, again, to come and to share the Word, and I'm so thankful uh, Pastor Aaron had asked me. It's nothing but a pure pleasure on my part to read the Word of God, prepare the Word of God, see what it has taught me, and then to share that with my brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly on a Sunday morning. I've said this before, but there's just something about gathering together on a Sunday morning that just blesses our hearts. Here we are from different backgrounds and various vocations and ethics and all kinds of things like that, all focusing at one time upon the Lord, singing about him and praising him with 10,000 praises as we have sung. Well, this morning I thought we would consider Psalm 27. The Psalms are unique. They speak to, our, speak to our hearts. And one of the reasons they speak to our hearts is because we can identify with the words. There's something there about them that speaks to us. For example, the great comfort that this verse provides, Psalm 116, verse 15. We read these words, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. That's a wonderful promise to those of us who have lost loved ones. Or encouragement. The Lord is my shepherd. Not just any shepherd. He is my shepherd. Great encouragement there. Guidance, Uh, we talked about that this morning with the children's message. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And the last time I was here, we talked about the personal testimony in Psalm 116, and we talked about the idea how powerful personal testimonies can be. And that's another reason why the, the Psalms are so unique to hear the stories and to the, hear the accounts of how God has worked in someone's life, how, the work that he has done. I mean, you cannot read Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, after David has committed a horrible sin of adultery and murder, and God forgives him, and he declares, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then at the end of that, he instructs us by saying, Be not like the horse or the mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and a bridle so that they will not stray away. We learn from the experience of personal testimonies. And as we look at Psalm 27, here is another personal testimony that comforts and instructs us. And as we read this psalm as it was read just a few moments ago, you cannot help but understand you cannot help but be impressed with how he expresses his confidence in the Lord. I mean, take a look with me at verses 2 and 3. He said, "When evil doers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall." Though an army encamp against me my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me yet I will be confident. And look at verse 10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me but the Lord will take me in. This great confidence that he has. And we find this throughout scripture. These men and women of great faith and the confidence that they express and the faith that they have in the Lord Jesus. For example, I mean we think about David and Goliath standing up against the giant. We think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here these guys are. You're going to be thrown into the fire if you don't bow down to the king. They did not bow down. God spared them. But just the courage to stand in the faith that said, God will care for us. He said, if we perish, we perish. It doesn't matter. God is glorified. And we see these great heroes of faith, like listed in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, where believers are commended. And some of the things that they did, they stopped the mouths of lions. We know Daniel. He quenched the power of fire. But that was expected. God delivered them. But what's interesting is it also commends their faith even when they went through difficult times. They suffered mockings and floggings in prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. And yet they continued to remain faithful. Do you get the point? And as we read through Scripture, we find men and women of extraordinary faith that challenges our own faith, and it's not just limited. You know, we, we sometimes get this idea that in the Scriptures: these people were special, and they are because they're recorded in Scripture. But you understand that the promises and the things that God did in their lives, He does in ours as well. That even in our own contemporary experience, we find people and individuals of great faith. I remember. One time, when I was a senior in high school in a History 2 class, we had to give a report. And uh, each, each student was required to report on some contemporary issue. Now, I'm going to give it a little bit away about my age here. But in the late 60s and early 70s, there was a thing known as the Jesus Freak Movement. And uh, it was a, a, a somewhat of a revival out there in California. Actually, Calvary chapels had come out of that particular movement. So uh, this one girl, Kathy Shap- Shop- Shopshire was her name, she gets up in class, in history class, and she's going to give a report on the Jesus Freak Movement. What's funny is I can't remember what I reported one, but I remember what she did and so she went on to talk about how these young people that were in college were flocking to the beach and being baptized were putting their faith and trust in the Lord having prayer meetings telling others about Jesus and she, and she goes on this big long spiel about how this Jesus movement was coming across the country and at the, end of the, at the end of the class at the end of her report she says now you might think that this is just taking place in California but I want to tell you I'm a Jesus freak and she gave her testimony. Now, I realize she wasn't near death or anything like that, but, you know, you're a senior in high school, and all your peers are looking at you. And she stood up for her faith like that in the public high school and said, I am a Jesus freak, and I've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. Uh, you, just, you just, you know, a- a- as we look at these great heroes of faith, I, I begin to think, boy... I wish I were that way. I wish that I had strong faith like that. I mean, the Lord has worked in my life in wonderful ways. But, you know, we still struggle, don't we? I mean, think about Habakkuk. Here is Habakkuk. He looks at, he looks at the nation of Israel, and he's praying to God, and he says, Lord, how can you let your people continue in sin like this? How can you allow them to sin? I mean, look at them. They're doing this evil. evil. How can you do this? And so God answers him. He says, Back, I'm going to do something that if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. He said, I'm going to bring in the Assyrian Empire, and they're going to punish my people. Now Habakkuk has a greater struggle in faith because the Assyrian Empire was far worse than Israel. And he says, God, how can you use those sinners to punish us who are not as bad as sinners? And, of course, you know what happens. He ends up praying at, uh, on top of the tower, and God answers his prayer again. But he, had, he struggled. I think about the disciples in the upper room after Jesus has, has, has been crucified and, and before he's resurrected, and they're in the upper room, and, and the doors are locked because, because they're, they're, they're concerned, they're fearful. And, of course, there's Peter's denials as well. And we think about those individuals, and now we come to the point where we think about our own faith. We think about our own experience. And the question is, have you ever doubted God? Now, I'm not talking about God, doubting God's existence. I'm not talking about doubting the fact that God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. I'm not talking about doubting God, whether or not he saved us, although sometimes we can struggle with that as believers. But I'm talking about doubting God in those experiences that we have, those experiences in life that can bring us to that point of questioning him. Sometimes they're just very minor things. Lord, why am I in this lousy traffic jam? Lord, why did my computer have to freeze right now? Don't you know I've got a report in 10 minutes unless it's down? And then there are there's other times. Other times that, that are not quite as important, but are other times that are much more important, rather. The times when we've lost our job and we have no place to go. The time when the Lord has taken someone we love dearly out of our life. Perhaps the time when, when there's such a family disruption that it separates you from your children or your children from your parents and those things. And all of a sudden you're saying, oh, what is going on here? What is happening? Things in life that cause us to question the uh, the Lord, to question, what are you doing, Lord? And, and, you know, there are times, there are times, and and you may not have experienced, and you may experience in the future, where, you know, you'll be going through a difficult time, and you'll hear things like this, and and they're good things, don't misunderstand me, I'll explain to you in a moment, but they'll say, you know, keep the faith. Or they'll say, well, you know how all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Or maybe they come up to you and they'll say, you know, I know, James tells us to count it all joy when we fall into various trials. And what happens is that sometimes those words seem very empty to us. It's not that they aren't powerful. It's not that they aren't God's words. It's just that our, we are so overwhelmed with our grief or our stress or our distraught that we just say, what, what am I going to do with this? It works out for good, but it doesn't feel that way. How can I have joy in the midst of this kind of trial that has shaken the very foundation of my life? Psalm 27, in his personal testimony, helps us to understand how we might strengthen our faith. He is going on, and you saw the confidence he has. It doesn't matter what my enemies do to me, they're going to fall. It doesn't matter if my mother and father forsake me. The Lord is with me. And so let's take a look at Psalm 27, because there are at least four lessons. I'm sure there are many, many more, but I've just narrowed it down to four this morning. And the first one is this, that when we're doubting and struggling in our faith, the first thing we do is to place your confidence in the Lord. Look with me, if you will, at the first three verses. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me eat, to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. You see, he's placing his whole confidence, his whole faith is in the Lord. The Lord is going to take care of me. And I say, well, the first step is to place your confidence in the Lord, and your response may be, well, come on now. Of course I put my faith and confidence in the Lord. I've given him my life. I've trusted in him with my very soul, and yet I struggle with this doubt. And the psalmist here, and here's the key to it all, is very, very specific. You know, too often in our advice to others or even our advice to ourselves, we become too generalized. We speak in generalities. We say things like have faith, and we say things all work together. We say things count of all joy, uh, and they sometimes are helpful. But here he gives us three metaphors. Do you notice that his confidence is built up? But why does he have such confidence? Why has he placed such confidence in the Lord? And the first three verses tells us, did you notice what he says? The Lord is my light. That's the first metaphor he gives us. He says, The Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my stronghold. And he's beginning to think specifically about the Lord. You see, he recognizes that and acknowledges that the Lord is his light. It's not just I trust in the Lord. That's we say that, we say, I trust in the Lord. And he said, Well, what do you mean by that? Well, see, he's stepping back and he's saying, I trust in the Lord, my light. And by saying my light, he's using this metaphor that talks about divine holiness and truth. And it's the opposite of darkness. It's a, it's a way of seeing things clearly. He says the Lord is my light. It's through him I see things clearly. It is him who gives me light and understanding. And so it's not just I trust in the Lord, but I recognize that he is my light. He specifically thinks the Lord is my light. One commentator put it this way. He says, in the darkest of circumstances he has no fear for God is the light that dispels all darkness. You see, one of the things we're going to learn this morning is that we need to be specific when we begin to think about the helps and the aids and the strength the Lord gives us. And here's one of them. When we put our confidence in the Lord, it's just not simply, I put my confidence in the Lord and there's this big general thing, but rather I begin to think about the Lord and recognize He's my light. And we have the Lord's light. In fact, We have the Word of God. God expressing who He is. God telling us what to do. God showing us, giving us understanding. I mean, you may not understand the trial you're going through, but you know this, that nothing shall separate me from the love of God. Where do you get that? You get that from the Word of God. You get that from the light of God. No matter what happens, no matter how horrible things are, no matter what I have done, nothing will separate me from the love of God. God's light tells us that, you see. I'm stopping. I'm thinking. The Lord is my light. He is the one I'm going to follow. He is the one who enlightens me. He is the one that I can place my confidence in because he loves me and nothing can separate me from the love of God. you understand? That's the idea. He goes on, and we have his light. The sad part is that we don't always listen to it. I'm sure in times here things. How often have you ever said in your life, I know I should, but what have you done? You've taken away the light out of your life. You've taken away the light, the understanding, the truth that God has given you. God says, this is the way it should be done. And you know it's the way it should be done. But 2 Peter 1.3 says this, a wonderful passage. It says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Did you get that? All things that pertain to life here and our spiritual life, Godly is through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And then he goes on. It's not just as though he stops and thinks about God as his light and provides all this wonderful comfort. He goes on and says and acknowledges, he is my salvation. The idea, it's a general term here, the idea of salvation, deliverance from both physical and spiritual dangers, uh, perhaps even his presence enemies he may have in mind. He recognized and acknowledged God's deliverance. Physically, my enemies shall be destroyed spiritually. Remember that passage I read to you in Psalm 32, 1 and 2? That the Lord has forgiven him for his sin. He acknowledges that it's only the Lord is his salvation. He recognizes also the Lord as the strength or the stronghold of his life. Stronghold, a strong, fortified place. Protection, security. Proverbs says it this way. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. You see, when we begin to talk about the Lord and putting our confidence in the Lord, it's the putting our confidence in the fact that He is our light, that He is our salvation, that He is the stronghold in our life. And as Proverbs encourages us, we ought to run to Him because we are protected in that. You see, when we begin to think and our faith starts to struggle, we need to put our confidence in the Lord. And the place to start is always with the Lord. That personal relationship. Did you see what he said? He didn't just say the Lord is a light. The Lord is a stronghold. He didn't say that. He said the Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my stronghold. It is taking God's word and saying it belongs to me. It is mine. It's yours too. But understand that others you may not be struggling in the faith the same way you are. You have this. He is my strength. It is a, 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 a personal thing. But also, what's interesting about this is that it's a priority. Do you notice, if you were to read through this passage of Scripture, 14 verses, 13 times he mentions the Lord. And so the question comes up, where do you go when doubts arise? When you struggle in your faith, where do you go when you're consumed with anxiety or worry or difficulties? Sometimes we go to others. Sometimes we go to books. Sometimes we go to classes. Sometimes the expert or a counselor Sometimes even drugs. And, and some of those things can be helpful to us. But that's not the first place we should go. The first place we should go is to the Lord. Our right. Our, our, right, our salvation. Our stronghold. Remember that we're not running to a stranger here. We are running to our Heavenly Father. Do you remember Romans 8.15? Look what it says here in Romans 8.15. I'll read it for you. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We're going to our Father. And as we go to Him, He embraces us as a stronghold. He embraces us and delivers us. He embraces us with His light and gives us understanding. These are the wonderful things that we're putting our confidence in. To take time. The intimacy of that relationship brings peace. Recognize that the Lord is your light. Recognize that he is your salvation. To acknowledge he is your stronghold. One of the best quotes I ever read about this whole idea of of just stepping back and putting our faith and trust in, and 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 in the Lord is found in the Heidelberg Catechism. This was written in 1563. But let me read to you. You know, the catechisms were things they used to use to teach Christians. They would have a question and then have a printed answer, and children would memorize these and, and adults as well. But here in this particular catechism, Heidelberg Catechism, the question is this: What is your only comfort? In life and death. And here's the answer. It's a, it's a long one, but I'll read it. That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily, willingly, readily henceforth to live unto him. You see, I have put, what is my greatest comfort? I am not my own. I belong to my Heavenly Father, and His care is so great that not a hair from my head can fall, and that makes me, gives me a desire to serve Him more. You see, this is the idea of placing one's confidence in the Lord. It is not just a phrase. It is just not some kind of cliche. It is something like putting my confidence in the Lord, my light, my salvation, my stronghold. But it doesn't end there. There's a couple more things. The next one is found in verses 4 and 5. Look there with me, if you will. And this is, come into the presence of God. Come into the presence. we placed our confidence in the Lord. Now we're going to come into his presence. Notice what he says in verses 4 and 5 here. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon the rock. You see that he's talking about the Lord and coming into his presence here. Notice the confidence. Just notice how he says, you know, my enemies go against me. I'm not going to fear them. But this one thing I do, I ask the Lord that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He knows that God is everywhere. He understands the doctrine of omnipresence. He understands all that. But then he's still saying, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want to be in God's presence. I want to acknowledge God's presence in all my life. I mean, we come to church here in the morning, and we come, what do we come to do? We come to worship the Lord. We come to sing praises to him. We come to pray to him. We come to fellowship because he has brought us together as a body of Christ. We've done all these things. You see, he sees this. And, and there's something unique about gathering together with other believers in the presence of the Lord. And when we come to church, oftentimes we pray, say, Lord, I, I, I'm going to worship this morning. Speak to my heart. Make our heart sensitive. We even pray it during the service here before we began. Lord, let our hearts be sensitive. And so he wants to come in. And what does he want to do when he comes into the presence of the Lord? Look at the passage. It's, it's somewhat interesting. He says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Now, and then the second thing he says is to make inquiries. That's interesting, because when we go into the presence of the Lord in a unique way, and perhaps you even did it this morning, when you went into prayer or you prayed this morning, did you say, Lord, I've come before you and I want to gaze upon your beauty? And then you give him the list of prayer requests. Usually it's this way, Lord, I'm coming in your presence, I need help here, I need help there. That's not what he does, you see. Before he even goes to prayer and makes his request, what does he do? He gazes upon the beauty of the Lord. And as a result, you notice here that God hides him, that God conceals him, that God lifts him up upon a rock, and the whole picture is that God has got him in his embrace, and he's not going to let him go. He keeps him safe, he keeps him covered, and he places him up on a rock. He knows that the Lord will do after gazing upon his beauty. The psalmist responds and he says, I'm going to offer sacrifices. I will make melody and sing to the Lord. I mean, when we begin to think about this, why is it that we struggle with anxiety and lack of faith? It may very well be that when we go to the Lord, we're not coming into his presence to gaze upon his beauty, but rather we're coming into his presence to get out of trouble, to make things easier for us, but that's not what he does. Perhaps we're not coming into his presence You remember Job, he lost all, everything that he had in the beginning chapters of Job. And what does he do after he loses all his wealth and all his family with the exception of his wife? What does he do? He puts on sackcloth and ashes, he tears his clothes, and he said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And our second priority, when we come into his presence, is to gaze upon his beauty. And to gaze upon his beauty means to stop and to think about him. It doesn't just simply say, oh, the Lord is beautiful, but it means to stop and think about him. To think about who he is and what he has done and how great his life is. And in fact, he gave it for us, all these wonderful things. It is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, everything about the Lord. Few years back, I was involved in a prison ministry. We had a, a prison ministry, I was a Sunday church, and once a month we would have a church service uh, at the prison for these for the inmates. It was a voluntary service, but we would range anywhere from thirty to sixty prisoners, and uh, participating. And I remember one time being there. and My responsibility that night was to lead the prayer time and testimony time, and it, it was it was really interesting. I mean, here you have you know sixty convicts just waiting in prison, some of them long-term, some of them short-term. And uh, so I said, okay, do we have any prayer requests tonight? I said, tonight we're going to have some prayer requests. And also, you know, if you have any praises for the Lord, you know, to praise the Lord. Now you think, well, you're asking a bunch of convicts who are locked in prison and have hours free time, they come to church. Uh, and so we began, and it started off, we had one or two prayer requests. But then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, this one guy gets up, and he says, I want to thank the Lord for saving me. And then this other guy gets up and he says, I want to thank the Lord that he's given me brothers and sisters in this place. And the other guy gets up and says something like, I want to thank the Lord that they've come and have provided a church service for us. I want to thank the Lord for his word. I want to thank the Lord for taking care of my family. I want to thank the Lord for bringing my family here to visit me today. I couldn't believe it. Here are these men in prison who have nothing, so to speak. They have the Lord, of course, but they don't have anything. And here they are praising the Lord. But what I'm making a point of is that each time someone gave a testimony about the beauty of the Lord, that group of men was gazing. were gazing upon the beauty of the Lord and all they saw, the Lord this, the Lord that, the Lord this, the Lord that. When we take our time and we begin to go before the Lord, we start off by gazing upon his beauty, recognizing who he is and what he's done. Turn with me to Psalm 139. 139. We know this psalm. This is the psalm that uh, that is used uh, all the time for uh, a defense that life begins at conception and it's a good use of it and all that. But there's something interesting about this psalm. Here's a man who's gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. He certainly knows that God is aware of everything, that God knows all things, the doctrine of omniscience. But notice what he says here. Oh, Lord, you have searched. This is Psalm 139, verse 1. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar off. You search out my path. And you get down to verse 4. You know it all together. Verse 5. You hem me in before and behind. He is not simply just going to the Lord, but he's recognizing when he says that God knows everything. He knows my thoughts. He knows my words before I even say them. He knows this about me. He knows that about me. All of a sudden, he's, he's gazing upon the beauty of the Lord and what the Lord knows about him, and what does he do? Look at verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and cannot attain it. He is going and gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, and he is overwhelmed. With God. You have the same thing in the next section when it talks about God's omnipotence, his power of creation. Do you know what it says? Uh, you know, he talks about the way God formed him in the womb and all that. And in verse 17, he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O Lord. The idea of ga- gazing upon the Lord. To know God, to gaze upon his beauty, brings peace. And the more and greater knowledge you have of the Lord, the greater the peace. I cannot tell you how guilty I am so often of going to prayer and I say, uh, you know, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to come before you in prayer. And and I'm praying and and, and saying, Lord, you know, so and so is having a problem here and and I'm having a problem here. And Lord, could you watch out for this and watch out for that? And I'll pray for my grandchildren and my children and my parents, my mom, and and, and you pray for all of these things. But I've never stopped. And once you begin to stop, you stop first before you make your inquiry like the psalmist did here and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And so now all of a sudden your prayers change. For example, like say you're praying for someone who's sick. So often we pray for those that are in poor health, and we say something like this. "Um, Lord, uh, please, if it be your will, heal them. Make them feel better. If we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, we think this. Lord, you're sovereign over all things. I know that you love this person more than I could possibly ever love them. Because you are loving God. Lord, you are a sovereign God. Lord, you are taking that person and conforming them to the image of your son. And I don't know how, but this particular illness is in the process of doing that because you have worked in their lives and because you have loved them. You see the difference there. One prayer is just praying and asking for something. The other prayer is gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, his sovereignty, his mercy, his grace, and what he's doing in the lives of all of his children. That's the difference. Gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. Gazing upon the beauty of the Lord transforms us. It transforms our thinking and how we approach things. In other words, we're not going to doubt God, but rather we're going to stop and think about it. He's a sovereign God. He loves me. He cares for me. He sent His Son to die for me. Nothing can separate me from His love when we gaze upon His beauty. In fact, we have Scripture to support that. Listen to 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's that very applicable. And we all, with unveiled face... Gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, beholding the glory of the Lord, so we have these unveiled faces. God has opened our hearts, and we see the Lord through the Word of God. Being and He says, "But we all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another." You see what I'm saying? We gaze upon the Lord, and it changes our hearts. It changes our attitudes. It changes the way we think about things. Let me give you one more quick illustration. Years ago, I, got a guy, I had a guy come to the church and, and he wanted some money. I couldn't give him money, but I could give him a ride. And so I said, All right, I'll give you a ride. It was 30 miles away. 30 miles. And uh, I was right in the middle of the day, very, very, very inconvenient, but okay. So I took him to a ride. I took him all the way down, 30 miles away, dropped him off. Not a thank you, nothing. Do you have any more money? No, I don't have any money. All right. Gets out of the car, goes to wherever he was going. I'm driving back there 30 miles, and I'm angry. I'm, I'm upset. Man, not even a thank you. Who's this guy I think he is? I just took time out of my day, and I went up there, and, I, and all of that. And I remember I was coming up over an overpass on 295, and as I was coming up over the pass, I thought, God's merciful. I was convicted. You know, that man offended me, but not near what I offended the Lord. And I thought, if the Lord can be merciful to me, I can be merciful to him. But see, I was gazing upon the beauty of the Lord because I stopped and I thought for a moment about his mercy. I should put it this way. God put the idea of his mercy in my heart and caused me to, to think that way. I, I recognize that. But you understand what I'm saying. I was no longer angry. I felt bad for the man. I prayed for him because God is merciful. He was merciful to me. I'll be merciful to him. That's the idea of that. We are transformed by gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, his mercy, his love, his faithfulness, his sovereignty, his holiness. And and when, when, when we begin to do that, it led me to ask myself these questions. Am I pursuing the Lord? Do I spend time gazing upon his beauty in times of trouble, or do I simply go to him asking for a means of relief or escape? Am I taking the time to gaze on his beauty? And is my life and my thinking transformed by his presence? Good questions. So place your confidence in the Lord. Come into his presence. And the third thing we find in verse 7 and following, he begins to pray. And that we need to pray appropriately. Notice, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me. It's a humble prayer. He says, be gracious to me, Lord. He doesn't he goes and recognizes that God does not owe him anything. You know, there's sometimes we get this idea we can bargain with God, but that's not the case. He recognizes he does not deserve an answer. He recognizes that he's a sinner saved by grace, and he's praying, Lord, be gracious to me. And then he, he's also intense in his prayer. He says it's an earnest prayer. He says, it says, You have said, Seek my face, my heart says seek my face. My heart says to you, Lord, your face do I seek. It is intense. He is thinking about what he's praying. My heart, the whole person, Lord, I am there. I'm with you. I'm seeking your face. It's a comfort. It's an invitation. He recognizes that although he's coming to the Lord out of the Lord's grace, he recognizes that God says, seek my face. In times of trouble, we're to seek him, but we're not just to seek him for a solution. We're to seek him for his glory and who he is. It was a prayer of faith. He says, I might be forsaken by my parents, the strongest of all personal relationships. And God's faith will be on the strongest of relationships. And he says, he will take me in. And when he says he will take me in, it's an expression of a father grabbing a child and setting them up and protecting them. That's the idea in that passage. It's a prayer for guidance and direction. He says, Lord, teach me your ways. And so when we talk about coming to the Lord in prayer and, and, and seeking to increase our faith, the first thing we do is that we come humbly to him. And that means none of this name-it-and-claim-it kind of theology that we hear so often on the television. It's none of this idea I can bargain with God. Maybe you didn't do this when you were younger, but I can remember being a young teenager in high school and and saying, Lord, Lord, I didn't study for a test. I said, Lord, if you let me pass this test, I will read my Bible every day for a week. (laughs) You know, these little... what's sad about that is that that, thankfully the Lord took me beyond that recognized I couldn't bargain with him but there are people who think that way Lord why are you doing this to me I go to church every Sunday Lord why are you doing this to me I pray to you every day Lord why are you doing this to me I read my Bible faithfully and the idea is that that, you know because I'm doing this Lord you owe me in all of our life we owe him for his sacrifice you know the idea of a humble prayer uh, you know no name it or claim it and it's intense and it's intentional. He said, you know, don't misunderstand. When he says things like this, Hear, O oh Lord, when I cry uh, aloud. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away. Uh, he, he cast me not off. Uh, he's not saying that like he's worried that God's going to do that, but he's like a little child saying, Lord, I, I'm here. I want to talk. Lord, I want to talk. I'm You know, like like a child coming to him and saying, you know, he does not want the communication to end. And so we approach the Lord intense, intensely and intentionally. Think of what you're saying when we pray to the Lord. Think about it. When we ask Him for things, think about what you're saying. That's an intentional prayer. Uh, and of course, it's going to be a prayer in faith. He's assured of his relationship and, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he says, though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will not... I read that passage. It was reminded of John chapter 9. Do you remember what happened there? There was a man who was born blind, and the Lord heals him, and the Pharisees and Sadducees got all upset, and they started persecuting there, They started questioning everybody, and they questioned his parents. They said, is this your son? Was he born blind? Did Jesus heal him? And they knew what happened, and what did they say? Well, he's a grown man. Ask him. We will know. And then the next couple of verses on and they kicked that man out of the synagogue, the blind man. They kicked him out of the synagogue, and here's this wonderful thing at the end that says, but the Lord went out and found him the Lord found him, you see the Lord is faithful, make it a prayer of faith it may be that the Lord has removed something from your life it may be that you're going through difficult circumstances Um, it may be that God has placed you in a position where you are completely dependent upon him, and he does that because he loves us and he's in a work in our lives it may be that situation with you, and follow the advice here, seek him Seek Him. Seek Him. Pray humbly. Pray intentionally. Pray thoughtfully and understand that He will answer your prayers. And so when in doubt and uncertainty and crisis of faith occurs, place your confidence in the Lord. Come into God's presence. Pray intentionally. But look at verses 13 and 14 and we'll finish with this. I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He's he's certain that God's going to answer him. But notice this. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. All of us, at sometimes we're going to have our doubts. We're going to have our struggles. We're going to deal with the, with, with the lack of confidence in what the Lord is doing in our life. And when that occurs, place your confidence in him. Acknowledge that he is your light, that he is your salvation, that he is your stronghold. Come into his presence and gaze upon his beauty and then make your inquiries. Gaze upon him. Understand who he is because it brings peace to know him. Come into his presence and gaze upon his beauty. Pray intensely and follow the advice of this psalm. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait on the Lord. Father, we are so thankful for your word this morning. Oh, Lord, we are so finite and so frail. And yet in your grace, you have brought us together. You have given us the strength to sing praises to your name, to worship you here this morning, to gather with our brothers and sisters. How thankful we are, Lord, for your wonderful grace in each of our lives. May we gaze upon your beauty each day. May we gaze upon your beauty in a habitual way as we come to prayer, recognizing who you are and what you have done in our life and give you all the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.